Welcome, everybody. Today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Casey Rondello, who is an associate professor of public health and emergency management at Adelphi University. He is a disaster epidemiologist who has been on the front lines of multiple disasters, including 9-11, where he was a first responder, Hurricane Katrina, a bunch of natural disasters, including uh, the H1N1 flu pandemic in 2009, and several others. So he's been doing this for many, many years. He has an MD. He also has a master's in public health. He went to Yale University. I mean, I could sit here and talk about his resume, just have a conversation about his resume with him for a whole entire day because it's so impressive. But he is a disaster epidemiologist um, who studies things like COVID and coronavirus and various pandemics and disasters that have happened um, throughout you know, our entire human history and how to deal with them. And that's what his research and his courses are within his university. So I'll let him add anything if he wants to, because I could seriously just sit here and ask him about his resume all day long. Um, but my first question for him, and he can actually uh, talk about his background in this, is what does it mean? What does this mean you're an epidemiologist? Explain that to me. I have, I'm not clear about what that means. Is that different than like the doctor I go see to get my physical? Right, that's such a good question. And, and before I even start, I wanna thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and to your audience. Um, I appreciate uh, the ability to communicate um, what I think is good, solid information about the current COVID pandemic, uh, because there is an abundance of, of information that you can find in so many sources. Um, and not all of it is entirely true. Uh, some of it can be very confusing. So I always welcome the opportunity to uh, speak to people and to try to clarify some of what uh, I think uh, may be misunderstandings about the COVID-19 um, disease pandemic. But um, to take a step back, epidemiology is essentially the science of public health. And uh, individuals who are educated in public health, it's a core uh, tenet of our, of our learning, of our education. Um, you can think of epidemiology, it's essentially the science of the spread and origin of disease. Um, you can think of it as falling into two buckets. There's descriptive epidemiology, which answers the questions, who, what, when, and where. And then once you've done descriptive epidemiology, there's analytical epidemiology, which is where you delve into the harder questions of why and how. Epidemiologists, I often describe to people, it's we're the disease detectives. And so we're the specialists in both chronic and infectious disease. Now, what I do is sort of a, a subgenre of epidemiology, and that's disaster epidemiology. So I specialize in those epidemiologic matters that deal with disasters, some of which are sudden onset, some of which are slow onset, some of which are natural, some of which are technological or, or created by man or even terrorist. And that all falls into what disaster epidemiologists do. So in particular, the short answer to your question is, I'm a specialist in the spread of diseases and in particular, those that uh, originate in disaster conditions. So now talking to an epidemiologist about um, COVID or coronavirus, would that be similar to like 
going to a heart doctor for like a cardiac issue versus going to like my GP? Is that kind of how we should be looking at this? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's actually a really uh, good analogy. When you go through medical school, and as you mentioned, I'm an MD. So when you go through medical school, uh, part of your education uh, deals with epidemiology, although it's a really small part. Sure. You have to understand that in the four years of medical school, you're cramming in an inordinate sure, amount of sure. information, right? So I think my epidemi- in medical school, my epidemiology training was uh, somewhere between two and three weeks long. Um, but that was it. Uh, and then of course the bulk of what I have learned, uh, about epidemiology, uh, was in my uh, graduate program in public health and also in my training post medical school, uh, when I began to specialize in epi and in particular disaster epi. So, um, I guess it's akin to, you know, a, a physician who has some other specialty um, knows a bit about the spread of, about epidemics and, and the spread of diseases and disasters, but it's a little bit like uh, if you were to go to uh, a dermatologist to have your appendix out. Sure. Right. Uh, the dermatologist learned a bit about surgery in medical school, but then they went off to special specialize in the care sure. of skin. Um, you know, you, you, you wouldn't do that. And that's why while uh, uh, MDs who have some other specialty certainly have, you know, greater knowledge than most, uh, when it comes to matters of epidemics and public health, um, epidemiologists are the specialists who've spent their careers studying that in particular. All right. Thank you. So sure. one of the things that I keep seeing um, and this is probably a simple question for you, but one of the things I keep seeing is that we keep seeing epidemiologists so and who work for the CDC and from the World Health Organization just across the globe. It seems like throughout this whole entire disaster, recommendations have been changing from from you know, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Uh, this is wash your hands or this is respiratory or we're going to see like this many deaths versus now we're, it's like the numbers keep changing. So does that mean experts just don't know or why, why would this happen? The reason why you need to remember that SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus, the coronavirus that causes the disease COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 was unknown to the world you know, six months ago. This is an entirely novel pathogen. That means that humans have never been exposed to this microbe before, to this virus. And so um, sometimes, many times throughout the course of a month, a week, even a day, our knowledge of COVID-19 disease and SARS-CoV-2, the virus, uh, increases and we're able to adjust everything from the guidance that we give people to our predictions of morbidity and mortality based on what is now known about the virus. We're learning so much every single day, but that's because we have volumes to learn about this particular pathogen. Um, It's really new to us. You bring up the example of mask wearing and how the recommendation changed from the time we first learned of COVID until now. And that's a really good example of how guidance changed based on an increased understanding of the spread of the disease. So 
they're basic masks only do two things, right? Masks of all types either protect the wearer from others or protect others from the wearer. And all masks, whether we're talking about N95s, P100s, surgical masks, or a bandana, all masks do those two things to varying degrees, protecting the individual from others and protecting others from the individual. So the N95 mask, and the reason it's called N95 is because it's it's rated when worn properly to filter out 95% sure. of uh, biologic particulates um, uh, from the wearer. The N95 mask is the standard mask to protect yourself from others, right? That's why it's the standard in healthcare. That's why whenever you go to the hospital or your doctor's office now, that's that's the type of mask that they're wearing. Cloth masks, or for that matter, you know, bandanas, procedure masks, sometimes called surgical masks. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what we have to wear now because you can't buy the N95, so. Right, exactly. The point of those masks, they afford you a little protection from your environment, but certainly not the protection that an N95 affords you. The primary purpose of wearing a mask in public is to protect others from you. Right. And, and the reason why that's so important, you say, well, why do they need to be protected from me is that I'm I feel great. I'm, I'm not sick. I'm not coughing or sneezing. Well, it turns out and this is this is what I was getting at earlier. As our understanding of covid has increased, we now know that up to 25 percent of people who have active covid-19 disease, people who are shedding virus and pose a threat to others, up to one quarter of them remain completely asymptomatic throughout the duration of their illness. Furthermore, we also know that there's some period before you express symptoms that you become contagious. So there's a there's a window of being pre-symptomatic. Now that's different from like SARS, which wasn't didn't SARS and MERS, or maybe I'm getting them confused, but they were only contagious when symptoms presented, correct? So this it yeah. makes this harder to really track like that. Is that correct? Right. So when you, when you think about uh, all of different, every type of different pathogen, and we're talking about viral respiratory pathogens, sure. but all, all different pathogens have varying degrees of infectivity, uh, different uh, amounts of how easily they're spread from person to person. They have different incubation periods. Incubation period is the is the time frame between the point of infection when you become infected and your expression of the first sign or symptom, right? That's the incubation period. And quarantine periods are rooted in the incubation period. So that's how we decide how long someone should be in quarantine. It's based on our understanding of how long it could be between the point they get infected and the point they have their first sign or symptom, basically the, 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 that they know that they're ill. But as I was talking, my point that I was making regarding masks is that there are many people in the community who have active COVID-19 disease and don't know it. There are some that you know will have symptoms of COVID-19, but they're in the pre-symptomatic phase. And so requiring individuals to wear masks when in public is a measure of protecting others, particularly from those individuals, from those asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people that don't know they're sick, don't know they're a threat to others, but they certainly are, um, particularly when they cough, sneeze, sure. 
or, or even potentially speak. And it reminds us, like if I see someone in a mask, I'm like, oh yeah, social distancing. Remember, we're staying away from people. So it's a helpful, rem it's like, you know, sometimes they say like, well, wearing that knee brace doesn't actually, might not fully prevent you from a knee injury, but it reminds your knee, like, take it easy there. You know, is that, is that like a, how we, how we look at this, like in one way that wearing a mask will remind everyone like, oh yeah, stay away, stay away, stay away. Yeah, and there actually is another benefit to wearing bandanas, surgical masks, procedural masks out in public that deals with protecting yourself. And that's a, there are two ways that we know COVID-19 is spread. And, you know, I, I mentioned that there's, you know, volumes of things we don't know about COVID-19. Very fortunately, among the things we do know are how this disease is spread. Imagine an epidemic in which we don't know how it's being communicated from person to person. Fortunately, with COVID-19, we do. We know that there are two primary measures, ways in which COVID-19 is spread. The first is through person-to-person -person association with respiratory droplets. So someone who's sick, right, coughs, sneezes, sure. talks, some say potentially even breathes heavy, is not wearing a mask, Respiratory droplets spew out of their mouth. And I want to show you a picture in a second. And an individual then inhales those respiratory droplets, an individual is susceptible, and they get COVID-19 that way. The second way that people get COVID-19 is through surface contamination. So the person that's sick, coughs or sneezes, respiratory droplets spew out of their mouth and nose, and they land on a surface. Now we know that those respiratory droplets remain viable. The virus on those droplets remains viable for some window of time. It depends on environmental conditions. It depends on what the, what the surface is. Sure. Now we're talking about fabric or metal, right? So it's varying degrees of time, but there is some amount of time that the virus is alive. And then someone comes along who is vulnerable, touches that surface and then puts their hand up to their head, rubs their eyes, you know, gets them out of their mouth, whatever scratches their nose and you essentially uh, uh, inoculate yourself introduce the virus inadvertently to yourself uh, and second main means of trans transmission that's a great example of the benefit that a mask can give you it you know when you're wearing a mask it first of all reminds you keep your hand keep my hands away from my face and for the times that you forget and you inadvertently go to scratch your nose you know there's a barrier an actual physical barrier between your body and the virus on your, your face and the virus on your finger. So that's another added benefit. I just wanted to show you a quick picture if I can do that. So here's a great example of what happens when someone coughs or sneezes. This is a photograph that's taken uh, with um, photography that, you know, uh, is I forget what they call that, but stop action photography where they take many, many frames in a split second. Sure. So it's and, like really showing us what the sneeze looks like versus like if you were trying to take a picture with your phone, you can never get a shot like this. You need a high Exactly end. right. I know exactly. the tech behind that. <laughs> That's where I'm <laughs> at. I can tell you how they take that picture. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can, believe me, there's an infinite amount you can teach me about tech. So I'm going to leave that stuff to you. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just want you to notice a couple things by this. First of all, I want you to notice the distance that these respiratory droplets are traveling, right? And then also note that they're not all the same size. Some of the respiratory droplets are larger and some of them are smaller. 
And the size of the droplet uh, has a, a close relationship to how far the droplet travels. You keep hearing about the six-foot range, the sure. six-foot range. And that's because the bulk of the droplets will fall it within a six foot distance. So think of that as sort of the danger zone. Sure. Here's an, uh, this another picture uh, of the same sort of thing. This was done by a professor at MIT. And uh, I like this one because it demonstrates the two types of droplets, the larger droplets, which here you see colored in uh, green, and the smaller droplets, which are in this cloud of a reddish orange. Yeah, we hear that term and aerosol. Yeah, exactly. But all of this uh, is being projected within a six foot range. And now imagine if someone were to be wearing, you know, something that you commonly see out in public now, uh, a bandana or a, a surgical procedure mask. It will certainly droplets will come out of the sides of the mask. However, they'll be far, far closer to the infected person. And those droplets will not travel you know, uh, sure. uh, any, any distance away from the person. And that's what we're shooting for in having people wear masks in public. So even the, a cloth mask, I mean, I can imagine, just put a T-shirt up to my face and I know if I cough that it's not going to go anywhere. I mean, or a tissue or whatever, it, it stops at least a significant amount of it. So yeah, and that's the goal. That's the goal. Because imagine not wearing a mask and take a look at this picture. And now imagine that there's, you know, either a person who's standing in that six-foot range or imagine that there are surfaces, whatever, you know, a table, a shopping cart, anything that those droplets are now going to land on and pretend, and someone come along during the time that that virus is viable, touch it, and then touch their face, right? That's what we're trying to prevent. And that's the whole point of, uh, you know, the, the requirement for, for wearing a mask. And the reason why it changed is that, you know, we began to understand the importance of the asymptomatic individuals with COVID. You know, in the beginning, we had no idea that there were such a sizable proportion of people who were asymptomatic, who didn't know they were sick, but had the disease and were spreading it to others. That's actually one of the main reasons why COVID-19 has been so difficult to control, is that it's, it's, that it's extremely challenging for us to know who's sick. Sure. Because, you know, you have all these asymptomatic individuals. So once we began to know how met, what, what a problem it was with asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic folks out in the general community, the recommendation changed from not wearing masks because early on in the pandemic, before we knew about the issue with asymptomatic folks, we didn't want people wearing masks because we thought the threat uh, you know, when you have a mask on, if, unless you're really accustomed to wearing it, you know, it's uncomfortable. Sure. You fidget, I mean, I wear fidget. it in my garage to paint or like I'm sanding something. I mean, I, I, have, I have an N95. I actually have an R95 that I use for things like that. And I know, yeah, it's not fun. I use it for yard work, too. We get a lot of pollen in my area. So everyone, all my neighbors, we all have masks to use in those times. And, yeah, it's not fun. It's uncomfortable. It fogs up your glasses. Like, it's not fun. Yeah, absolutely, and and so when before we knew about the issue uh, or the or the the uh, amount of the degree to which the asymptomatic individuals are a problem, the advice was revert was reversed. We don't want people wearing masks because when people wear masks and they're unfamiliar with it, they they fidget with it and they move it around and they're constantly adjusting it. And like I just said, the the second primary means of 
getting exposed to COVID is when you bring your hands up sure. to your head. Sure, touching right? your so, touching the mask, then touching your eyes, then touching exactly. everything else. So you're actually putting it there. Sure. So the belief was that it's actually worse to wear the mask because of the threat of you bringing your head to your head, your hands to your head more frequently. Um, but you know the scales tipped, and it, and and that risk, the risk of bringing your hand up to your head, was became less of a priority and the protection of protecting others by wearing the mask became a greater priority and the recommendation changed. So basically we're gonna, we're, so we should, we should as a society keep expecting recommendations to change until we have a cure for this. Like, right, that's gonna, as the more we learn, every day that we learn more about this, things are gonna change because now we have more info to work with. It's just like a, predicting a hurricane, like every day that cone gets smaller and smaller. Like, you know, two weeks out, when it's not formed, like it could go 10 different directions, but every day it gets closer and closer to us. So it's very, it seems very, this seems very similar to that. And I think that's a point that we need to really like drive into society that we need to know like this is expect the experts as they learn to tell us more things based on that knowledge, right? Like, yeah, uh, that, that's a it's a great analogy when you bring up the, the National Weather Service prediction. We, we all know what that's like and we know that as the hurricane gets closer, the window of error gets more and more narrow as we become more and more sure. certain. That's precisely what's happened with our estimation of case count and death count from COVID, right? In the beginning, it was really like, you know, we, we had no idea what to expect. And so the window of error was wide. But as time goes on and as our understanding improves, you know, that window gets more and more narrow and we're able to predict with greater and greater accuracy. Sure. All of these novel pathogens. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to uh, be a part of the response for many different types of disasters from the emerging infections like Ebola, West Nile virus, SARS, MERS, Zika, right? To uh, uh, the terrorist disasters, um, you know, ranging from, you know, 9-11 to natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes. And in all, in all of that, but particularly the, uh, the novel infections, as time goes on and we learn more and more and more about everything from how best to treat it, how best to prevent people uh, from getting it, right? Guidance changes. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because it means that we're learning more and we're able to give better and better advice. Yeah, because the because advice you're gonna the advice you're giving now is gonna be better than what you gave us two months ago because it you, is. you have a lot more information to say, oh, now we know. You know, we know a lot more about this. So, and leading into some of what you've just talked about with like the mortality and stuff. So I keep seeing, I know, and I, I guess that's a big thing is that our numbers have changed as far as like, what is the percentage of mortality? Like we keep seeing the numbers change. I know that our hope is that we overestimated in the beginning, right? Like that's, that's a, a hope is that we're probably looking at like the worst case scenario. And we saw those initial numbers from China and said like, three, four, five percent. We're hoping that it's much less than that. And it probably is, but it, we're still not sure. Or do we do we have a better understanding of what that is? 
Yeah, so this is the, a typical pattern for all novel infections that we've never seen before. It's that in the beginning, the mortality rate always looks higher than it will ultimately be. And the reason for that is because the, the people that we are identifying as being infected with that new pathogen, uh, that number is very, very small, and it's the sickest of the people. Sure. Now, for lots and lots and lots of reasons, it's not a surprise to you that we've had enormous challenges with testing in the United States in particular, but all across the globe. And so, unfortunately, without a rigorous ability to test, we don't know who has the disease. Yeah. And we therefore don't know, you know what the true mortality rate is, or for that matter, the, the uh, infectivity rate, the case count rate. So as more people get tested, as our understanding of who has COVID, who had COVID improves, we will adjust the mortality rate and, you know, it'll get higher or it'll get lower, but eventually it'll get to the point where we understand the mortality the same way we understand the mortality from something like influenza or SARS, right? We didn't, in the, we didn't initially know that for sure. It took time and it took epidemiology. It took, you know, the quantitative science of public health in order to determine the true mortality rate. Right, so there are things that work to inflate the mortality rate and things that work to deflate the mortality sure. rate, right? So as we identify more and more and more people, right, we're gonna capture those that were less clinically ill. And so that will increase the denominator of that fraction so that the mortality rate will go down, you know, because we'll identify more and more people that, you know, had less than life-threatening sure. COVID and so that will have the effect of bringing that mortality rate down. But we do know, no matter what, that if left like doing nothing, like as we saw in New York or China, that the mortality rate is high enough that it will overflow hospitals. We're not we're not prepared for the mortality rate or for the hospitalization numbers that this causes versus like other disease. It's it's gotta. It seems like it's definitely higher. Otherwise, hospitals would never overreach capacity, or it's just that we can't treat this like we can flu, and we don't have a vaccine. So maybe, you know, I'm, I, would our so like let's say we didn't have treatment for the flu or vaccine, would those numbers be? I mean, those numbers would obviously be much higher than they were. Yeah, they'd be dramatically higher. And and when you look at not the mortality rate, but when you look at the overall number of people that have COVID nineteen, and you look at the overall number of people that die from COVID-19 or that we expect will die from COVID-19, you know, that number, you know, was initially very high because again, we didn't really, we were grappling with understanding the magnitude sure. of this disease. Uh, then as is normal, the, um, when you look at the predictions of the overall numbers of people that have COVID-19 disease and succumb to COVID-19 disease, the ultimate mortality, Right, that number has fluctuated widely as our understanding of the disease has improved. So COVID-19 followed the pattern that most diseases do when they're novel and uh, you know protections get put in place. Initially, the prediction of the number of people to die from COVID-19 was enormous. And then measures were put in place, right? Social distancing, mask requirements, stay at home if you're sick 
schools closed and places of assembly closed. And what happened is, as we would expect, the overall prediction of, of, uh, of number of people to die from COVID-19 began to go down, sure. which was great, right? Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that it's ha- the changes that are being undertaken now by uh, certain governments, certain states around the United States in relaxing social distancing recommendations, mask wearing requirements, and other protective health measures. Unfortunately, we're seeing exactly what you would expect. We're seeing the estimated number of deaths go back up. So after a long period of time, when the total number of deaths predicted was going down, as the bolts get loosened, which you know needs to happen at some point, but you don't want to do it too early because of exactly what's happening. Unfortunately, uh, in the last few days, the models have predicted that the death rate will, the death number uh, is beginning to climb again. Sure. Um, that's what most of us are, are, are really concerned about right now. So if we just like ripped the Band-Aid off of, just said no more social distancing in the United States, social distancing is done, we're just going to go 100% back to... I'm going to the gym in the mornings, doing all that stuff. What, what are, what are you th- like? What is, what is epidemiology? Like, what are the experts saying is probably going to happen? Yeah, the reason why that would be an awful idea is that it would lead to hundreds of thousands of deaths that otherwise would not have happened, right? If everyone was like you, you know, a fit individual who's young and has no uh, uh, comorbidities, no health problems, has an intact, fully functioning immune system, then there might be some validity to people uh, getting exposed when they didn't otherwise have to be. But you have to remember that the buckets of individuals who fit into the high-risk category for COVID are millions and millions of people everyone from individuals who are especially vulnerable as a function of their age, because as we age, our immune systems aren't as efficient and effective as they were when we were younger. And is it like obesity an issue and smoking? And like, there's just a bunch of like so many, it's gotta be like, I don't know, two thirds, I'm just guessing, two thirds of Americans probably have something that puts them in the high risk category. If you add up- Yeah, and I don't know the number either, but I'll tell you that it includes everyone over the age of 65. It includes people with a litany of comorbidities like diabetes and cardiopulmonary disease. It also includes people who have issues with getting proper healthcare, access to healthcare. Uh, It includes individuals whose diet's not great because we know that there are uh, strong relationships between your diet and your immune system's ability to function. And wouldn't like having... sleep have an impact there too? Like for I'm sorry? sleep, as far as your immune system, like everything, vitamins, diet, sleep, exercise. Yeah, all I, I was actually, yeah, I was, I was actually uh, uh, reading and watching um, uh, a fellow physician was talking about the things that we can do to uh, improve people's, you know, resistance to all infections, but, but you know, but SARS-CoV-2 resistance. And he was making the argument that um, it's something that everyone can do. It's something that costs nothing. And, you know, he teases it and goes on and on and on. And, and he says, you know, you probably think this is not possible. 
what could this miracle thing possibly be? And his argument was, it's just sleep. And he went on to demonstrate with real data, you know, an evidence-based model of how simply having people factor more sleep into their lives, which we know that, you know, that's when your body's recovering. That's when your immune system is boosting, right? When you're not uh, when you're not busy doing the regular, you know, everything sure. else that you're doing during your day, when you're not up and talking and working and eating and, and all having of- my like kids jump in my room at five thirty in the morning. <laughs> yes, that <laughs> I'm exactly. going to explain this to them. <laughs> yeah, so your so your body finally gets its chance to recuperate and regroup, and your immune system do its job best when you have a, a significant enough amount of sleep. So yeah, so people that fit into the you know, increased risk group, that's an extraordinarily large number of people. And it's for lots and lots and lots of different And we just don't know how this is going to affect us. Like, it seems like everyone's just basically flipping a coin by, if you're going to get this, like, am I going to be the person that is bad or not? Right. And and we do know that people of all age ranges uh, are at risk for getting COVID and do get COVID-19 disease. And while statistically the risk of succumbing and dying from COVID-19 increases as age increases, it doesn't mean that at the low end of the age spectrum, people aren't getting very severe disease and some of them dying from that disease. You know, uh, there's lots that we don't understand. There there are 30 year olds who are getting strokes from COVID-19. There are, you know, 20 year olds who are on ventilators, some of whom are succumbing to the illness and dying, uh, others of whom are are still requiring an, ex- an inordinate amount of support just to keep them alive. So, uh, you know, statistically, yes, the risk of dying from COVID uh, is lower when you're younger, but if you're the one who dies from COVID- That doesn't, some, that didn't help you, yes. Right, exactly. You know, there, there are some people at all ends of that spectrum. So, so, um, go ahead. so speaking of dying from COVID, is it, I've, I've, I've heard things, I guess it's more like internet talk and maybe I've seen some news articles on it just about the fact that we are, are, so I guess my first question would be, are hospitals making money? Like are hospitals making money from diagnosing people with COVID-19 and are they making money from people labeling people who died as COVID-19? Like, is that is that something that's happening? Are they just labeling someone who has a heart attack as COVID-19? Is that how, how does this work? So, no, uh, so no, I guess the first I mean, question is how, how do, are hospitals making money from this in any way? Like, is this, cause that's what I, that's what I'm hearing. Okay. So, well, first of all, you need to understand, you know, anybody who's worked in, in administration of hospitals, studied healthcare administration, they'll tell you that hospitals, all health uh, organizations, but hospitals in particular, operate on a razor thin margin, right? Their operating margin of how much money they make, you know, the, the, the excess of their income versus their debts, you know, is often in the very low single digits. So not nothing related to COVID. In normal times, hospitals, you know, are, are not much more than a break-even proposition to begin with. Now, the way that hospitals are paid, you know, primarily we know that individuals that get most severely ill are older. Um, so those, many of those folks have Medicare. And I'll tell you the way that Medicare reimburses hospitals. 
They do so with what's called the prospective payment system, the PPS. Basically, the hospital diagnoses, uh, you know, or the physicians diagnose someone in the hospital with uh, a condition. Let's say they have appendicitis, and the uh, insurer, whether it's Medicare or you know uh, a private insurance company, pays a set amount for the care of someone with that condition. They don't pay for each test that's done. They don't pay for the salaries of the people that care for the individual. They get a lump sum for the care of someone with appendicitis, for the care of someone with a heart attack, a myocardial infarction, a lump sum for someone with COVID. And the hospital needs to you know, make that work. They basically have to take that money and all the different expenses, whether it's the pharmaceuticals, the drugs that the patient gets, the surgeries that you know uh, uh, they, they undertake, uh, the nursing care, and all of it, and they need to you know use that money to to handle those costs. I'll tell you that for the compensation that hospitals get for each COVID patient, the expenses to the hospital for the care of that patient whether it's the drugs they're trialing or the uh, ventilators, uh, the ICU level care, the nursing care, and on and on and on. I'll tell you that the reimbursement for COVID patients is substantially lower than the actual costs. Furthermore, what's exacerbating the problem dramatically is that a lot of times, the reason that hospitals are able to stay in the black and not in the red is that despite the patients that they're losing money on, they're able to make up some of that loss with patients that come in for other things, particularly elective procedures. And in the case of what's going on now, hospitals have stopped conducting elective procedures. So not only are they losing money on the COVID patients they're caring for, but the patients whose income would help to offset that are there. Yeah, they're 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 not they're either not coming because the hospital has canceled all elective procedures, which most have um, through through now through the middle of May or the end of May, or you know hospitals that have resumed elective procedures, people aren't coming, right? Because they are fearful of the risks of getting the disease when they're in the hospital. Sure. You know, even non-elective diseases or non-elective conditions, people are, are, are not coming into hospitals. Unfortunately, one of, the, one of the consequences that we never really predicted would occur is that people with very significant problems, having heart attacks, having they're strokes, in. they're scared. Not coming in, exacerbations of asthma, of diabetes complications. Under normal conditions, you know, these, these conditions are significant enough and life-threatening enough that people would come into the hospital for care. Those people, despite the fact that due to the various controls, there really isn't an increased risk of going to the hospital. You know, uh, it, it, when it's all done right, it could be one of the safest places to go. Um, unfortunately, those people aren't getting care. So we're not only we not only have the patients that uh, you know are the COVID patients, but unfortunately, we have the problem of of individuals with chronic uh, medical conditions that are bad, not coming in for care. So, it so, the whole I, so there's no advantage to a doctor diagnosing someone as COVID. There's no, is there, there's no advantage to them saying someone died as COVID. Is that correct? Like, versus no, something no, no, else. no, you give up the, you give the example of someone who's had a heart attack and COVID ends up on the death certificate. Um, you know, the death certificate indicates, 
what it is that the individual died from. Like, what was the immediate cause of death? So, for instance, um, you know, my mother died of breast cancer, but breast cancer isn't what's on her death certificate. What's on her death certificate is cardiopulmonary arrest, because that's ultimately what she died from. And the reason that she had that was because she has breast cancer. And I imagine that that would be a similar analogy to someone who has a heart attack and has COVID-19 on their death certificate. The heart attack may be the reason that, you know, they're ill. It could be, you know, the, the, the big chronic problem that occurred. But the, if the immediate cause of their actually dying was that as a result of their illness, they were immunocompromised and then they got sick and then they died of, you know, respiratory failure from COVID, then, then the COVID would be the, the cause of death. And, and likely, you know, on the death certificate would, you know, be a contributing factor was the, you know, the chronic medical condition of the heart attack or whatever. But um, that's that's the reason that I would imagine someone having a heart attack and, you know, COVID appearing on the death certificate, if that's in fact what they ultimately died from. Sure. And there's no advantage I, it, to a hospital claiming right. that one thing. There's no advantage to them saying cancer, COVID, heart attack. There's no difference in what's on the death certificate. It doesn't like help them or anyway. Because I think some people are, are I, I've seen that people are saying like hospitals are doing this on purpose, listing people as COVID when it's not for some reason. I, I'm not quite sure what the reason is, but I've just been seeing that kind of discussion and so that's why i'm asking like specifically like is there some advantage that they're even pulling that kind of information from no i don't i don't see any advantage and i and i'm also really surprised to hear about the idea that people think that covid19 is a boon for hospitals that it's this amazing situation because ask anyone who's involved in hospital administration at any hospital in the united states and they'll tell you that COVID-19 has been catastrophic for their fiscal health. It's been so damaging that it wouldn't be surprising if some hospitals completely go out of business, right? Even small-sized hospitals are, are, you know, have losses in the millions sure. and millions of dollars from March and from April and potentially for May, you know, we'll see down the line. So uh, yeah, that's a fallacy that, that, uh, that COVID is good for hospitals financially. In fact, it's it's devastating um, uh, for hospitals for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Okay, so I guess what I wanna ask is what are, what are experts saying is the future of this thing looking like? Like is there, like I, I can pull up a couple models. I'm not sure, I'm hoping they're the right ones, but like what, what, do, what do you think? Like what are epidemiologists, what is the consensus right now about potential paths for us as far as like what this is going to look like. Right. So um, when no one knows for sure. So the question becomes, well, how do we uh, take our uh, best scientific guess? And there are a couple ways that we do that. We look to what we know of this pathogen and, you know, the uh, we don't know a great deal about SARS-CoV-2, but we do know of other coronaviruses that are very severe, like SARS. We, uh, you know, can can extrapolate from what we know of other similar diseases and sort of plot that into a model and of what we think uh, COVID nineteen will look like. We can also look to other 
epidemics and pandemics that have occurred in the Northern Hemisphere in the last hundred years. And I'm thinking of, you know, certainly H1N1 in 2009. I'm thinking of the Spanish flu in 1918 and others. And we can, you know, learn from that example. And while it necessarily doesn't necessarily have to follow that model, it's a it's an it's a scientifically valid way of making an educated guess. And here's right? something here's something I want to just as you mentioned H1N1. I see a lot of <laughs> things of people saying we didn't H1N1 wasn't a big deal. No one remembers hearing about it. But just as a consumer in that time, 2000, I remember seeing it on the news like crazy. Like we thought it was going to be what COVID is now, right? Like it was, I remember like being very nervous, like for a year or two, like while that was happening, like, is this going to happen? Like it was big news at the time. It was in the media. We were talking about closing down schools and stuff then. Is that correct? Like it was a big thing. Yeah, you know, a couple of things that I want to say. First of all, you need to understand that when you're talking about any novel pathogen for which there is no proven drug treatment, there is no vaccine, and no one on the planet has innate immunity, when you have those things and a novel pathogen, the only tools you have left in your toolbox, the only weapons in the arsenal are the public health measures that we're currently uh, adopting thing, all the things that you know we're all accustomed to hearing about: mm-hmm. stay at home, places of assembly closed, wear your mask, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, the social distancing, six foot, you know, distance. And the reason why is because that's the that's sort of the firewall, right? Yeah. To use a tech analogy, that's the that's the last barrier between us and getting this disease and succumbing to this disease. Uh, so those public health measures are critical. So you know, with H1N1, um, you know, as the as the uh, evolution of the pathogen occurred, it didn't turn out to be as contagious and as virulent as we feared. And that's that's actually a good thing, right? And people say, well, w- why do we not hear about H1N1 anymore? Why you know why uh, why don't we have H1N1 epidemics? Well, in part, that's because we have an H1N1 vaccine. And you say, well, I think an H1N1 vaccine. Yeah, it's in your flu vaccine, right? Yeah, it's, it's right. In your it annual did. flu vaccine your- every year. It's now type A, H1N1 is in, I always see it. I mean, I pay attention to the CDC stuff. <laughs> I see it's in, I know I'm getting that vaccine every year. Yeah, so the flu shot, the reason why you get a different flu shot every year is that it represents epidemiologists' best guess of those strains of influenza that are going to be most problematic, most detrimental. Some years they get it, you know, very right. Some years they don't get it as right, which is the biggest reason why you could have a flu shot and still get the flu. It's because you've been exposed to a strain that's not covered in the vaccine. So, you know, H1N1 had the potential to be something like COVID-19 and we're fortunate that it didn't. So, you know, the picture of H1N1, the history of H1N1 could have been similar to what we're experiencing now, but fortunately, you know, it wasn't. You know, a lot of times public health is a victim of its own success, right? We think about, you know, well, why are we doing these these very inconvenient things that nobody likes, uh, public health protections? You know, everybody wants to go back to work. Everybody wants to, you know, have the kids back in school sure. and be able to go to the movie theater and eat at their favorite restaurant. Nobody wants that 
any 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 longer than it absolutely has to be, right? And and people say, well, you look at the data and the numbers are coming down. Why do we need the social distancing? Well, it's akin to someone who has high blood pressure who stops taking their medication because they say, my blood pressure has been low. Why do I need the pills? Well, the reason you got better was because of the medication. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason why, you know, our peak has come down is in large part, the largest part, because of the protections that we have in place, which, you know, as I said earlier, unfortunately, as those protections begin to be loosened, it's having what you would exactly what you would predict. It's having the impact of increasing the curve. So you asked the question about where is this headed? And uh, no one really knows for sure, but we can turn to uh, uh, models of what happened in the past epidemics in the last hundred years in you know North America and the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and we can look to our understanding of the virus, what we do know about it, and we can make some educated predictions. So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> um, I, I, and uh, the Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, uh, Dr. Michael Osterholm uh, created this uh, prediction, three predictive models, which give us an idea of the most likely directions that COVID-19 will go. So I'm pulling up what uh, he has plotted out as three potential COVID-19 scenarios. Um, this little peak, which you see in each one of the plots, is the epidemic that occurred in Asia, right? That's where COVID-19 started. And all the models have the same initial peak and the same second peak. The second peak is what happened uh, in North America uh, in uh, April. So basically that was the height of the first wave of COVID-19 in the United States. So like and that's New where the York models City. begin to vary, right? From that point on, they become different. Something to understand is that the pathogen is on its own schedule, right? Uh, to, to some extent, it's just going to continue to do its thing until a significant enough percentage of the population has immunity. Now, we expect that that herd immunity, right, that's what's called in public health, that that herd immunity level is probably something around 60 to 70 percent. So in other words, 60 to 70 percent of the population will need to have immunity before COVID-19 is over, before it's burned itself out. And it's just going to chug along until that, uh, that percentage is reached. And there's two ways that you get immunity, right? You get it naturally or you get it artificially. Natural immunity is when you get exposed to it in a real live environment. And artificial immunity is where you've been exposed to it, you know, artificially, like through a vaccine. So whether it's through natural or artificial immunity, it's going to require, you know, uh, somewhere between 60 and 70% of people to have immunological protection from COVID in order for this to all be over. So until we get to that point, these are three models. All so right? I just, I just, I just quickly ran some numbers. If sixty percent, so there's, if there's three hundred people, three hundred million people in mm -hmm. America, and sixty percent, that's conservative, have to get this. That's one hundred eighty million people have to get this. If, if only two percent of them die, that's three point six million people 
to get herd immunity. That's if this is only 2%. I mean, obviously it could be 0.05%, but even 0.05% of 180 million, I mean, we're still looking at, you know, many, many, yeah, many- Lots and lots and lots of people, which is, which is why th this, you know, continues to be um, such a, um, you know, significant, threat. You know, I mentioned earlier that our predictions of the overall mortality count have been climbing as social distancing restrictions have been loosened. Uh, and that's true. You know, we are now, you know, one of the models that, that is uh, most used, most cited by the White House, which is at the University of Washington, you know, is now initially they were talking about counts around the 100 and you know, initially very high, then down around 100,000, then 120,000. Now we're looking, I think the latest I saw was 147,000 and it's it's climbing up. So these are, these are very, very sizable numbers. And I also wanna bring up the point that it's not, you know, a measure of the magnitude of a pandemic is not only in the number of people that die from it, right? It's all the morbidity. It's all the the the, the loss. You know the the enormous uh, uh, economic loss. Sure. It's uh, you know the change, the the dramatic change n to our lifestyle that's occurred. So you know while mortality is certainly one measure of how bad an epidemic or pandemic is, um, it's just one measure, right? And unfortunately. The reality is that in one way or another, COVID-19 is gonna be a part of our lives for a long time to come, very likely you know, into 2021. So um, that doesn't mean that the levels of protections that we have now, uh, I switch this off for a minute. It doesn't mean the levels of protection that we have now um, are gonna be necessary up until 2021. We, for lots of reasons, the economy being only one of them, we need to uh, get, you know, back to closer to a pre-COVID level of normal. But I talk about pre-COVID normal uh, as something that, you know, is a goal, but it will not be achieved anytime soon, um, regardless of what our social distancing changes are, regardless of the mortality count. Um, we will, you know, be living in some altered reality from pre from pre COVID normal uh, into next year. So let me so, ask you, going into that, what are low risk versus high risk activities that people should or should not be engaging in? That you think, like, where can we, like, like if I'm going to go jog outside in my neighborhood, and is that a high risk if I pass something? Is like, is that high risk versus like going yeah. to Walmart? Really good question. So I could I could sit down and I can say, you know. Biking is better than a yoga class, which is true, by the way. Um, you know, and I can I can name you know a thousand you know make a list of a sure, thousand sure, things, there, sure. right? But instead, what I I think you need to do, you need to keep two things in mind, right? All whenever you're engaging in any action, whether it's your exercise or your shopping or whatever, whenever whenever you're engaging in any action, think about two things. Think about the two ways we know COVID is spread right? Respiratory droplets from someone who's sick, coughing, sneezing, or speaking, six foot distance, or surface contamination, right? So keep those two things in mind. And also keep in mind that your risk goes up 
as the number of person interactions in your life goes up. So whatever activities you're considering, whether it's you know shopping or exercising or whatever, bear in mind, how can I protect myself given the two ways we know COVID is spread and how can I do whatever I need to do, you know, whether it's, you know, get my exercise or, you know, get, you know, get out for my mental health, whatever. How can I do those things in a way that minimizes the number of people I interact with and the number of times I interact with them? Because that's where the risk is. So in your example, what about running? Running is a low risk activity. It's a low risk activity because especially if you choose to run, you know, at a time that it's very unlikely that a lot of people are running, okay? If you choose to run a route that there's likely to be fewer people on, you know, I, 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 I had a discussion with someone uh, about this subject running in particular, and I said, you know, consider the Robert Frost rule of disease protection. Take the road less traveled. <laughs> and that's true, right? And that's because you want to choose, whether it's going to the grocery store at an off-peak hour, or whether it's running a route that few people know about and there's less likely to be others on, you just wanna do whatever you can in your day-to-day -day life to minimize the number of person interactions that you're gonna have and the number of times those interactions are going to occur. So when you think about something like, in my example, running versus a yoga class, yeah, when I think about running, you're, especially if you choose to run at an off-peak time and in an area that's you know less you know less popular, less people running, your number of person interactions is going to be minimal, and the time of interaction is going to be very minimal, and you can mitigate the distance when those interactions occur. And for all those reasons, it's a safer activity versus something like a yoga class, which you know, by definition means people, are, and I'm talking now, I'm talking about a virtual yoga class, but a physical one, people are coming together. Sure, right? they're all and, inside a room somewhere doing right. a class. Less air exchange, really good point. Outdoors better than indoors, right? So indoors, less air exchange. People coming in close proximity, often shared equipment. Sure. Right? Remember surface contamination. Mats so whether it's yoga mats. Handles, opening the door handle to come into the studio. All every of single it, thing. The water fountain to fill Everything. your bottle, right? All of that. High touch items, things that people, a lot of people are having their hands on. Lots of things that I can point to as risk factors in, a, in an in-person yoga class. And there's not a whole lot that I can point to as risk factors in running. Sure. So that's a really good example of how you can factor science have an evidence-based approach to your own decision-making as you, you know, begin to loosen the bolts, begin to leave your home more frequently and, and do those things that, you know, we, we need and want to do and do it in as safe a manner as possible, right? You're never going to get your risk to zero. The only way you get your risk to zero is if you live in a bu bubble, you have no contact with any humans in the outside world. That's how you get risk to zero. That's not practical. So, you know, the closer you can get to that, the better. And and the, the more that you can, you know, as you, you begin to venture out, keep the science in mind, keep the real risks in mind, the safer you're gonna be.
And I, I assume we should be continuing to kind of try to, based on those models you just saw, like we might have a big, huge bump in the fall. fall. <laughs> like there might be a big spike or there might be peaks up and down and we don't really know. So I assume we should be continuing this kind of social distancing we're doing until either there's no cases around us, like in our area, or we have a drug that's treating this, preventing people from dying, or there's a vaccine. There, you know, there's all, I guess there's a bunch of, or the virus could even weaken itself, right? Like the virus can, can, could just become weaker and stop killing people. I assume there's a bunch of scenarios that could play out. Is that correct? Yeah, a couple of things that I want to show you. So uh, this this I, I showed for a few minutes earlier, um, three possible scenarios. Note that none of the scenarios go to zero. So nobody is suggesting that this goes to zero anytime soon, right? Um, this is where we're at now, case counts going down, okay? Um, but you'll see that, you know, in the three proposed models, here you sort of see an endemic baseline level of infection that's just think of it as a slow burn so hospitals doctors offices for the foreseeable future seeing some low level number of covid-19 sure. patients until we get to that magic you know number of, of in the herd immunity when this can be over um, another model scenario three, you see these peaks of equivalent height to what we saw in the spring, but occurring at different time periods, uh, again, working our way toward herd immunity. And scenario two, uh, unfortunately, is the model that follows uh, most of the epidemics that have occurred in the Northern Hemisphere in the last hundred years where there's been an initial outbreak, which, which was catastrophic and we thought was, was terrible. And then after social distancing and other measures put in place, uh, the virus comes back and, and actually uh, we, we then learn that what we saw at the earlier peak was just a prelude to the real disaster that was coming down the line. Um, we do expect the number of cases to increase in the fall. Unfortunately, this is for a number of different reasons. This um, uh, unfortunately will happen in concert with the uh, onset of flu season, which sure. will be, think of it as a double punch to your immune system, uh, a magnified assault uh, on your immune system, which many people's immune systems will struggle to, to manage. Uh, and so this is definitely, you know, a possibility. So that's kind um, of like a worst case scenario too, is a worst case scenario in the fall. So what does this mean for like, like, are we going to have school in the fall? I, I mean, I'm, we're, we, you know, we're, I'm a professor, you're a professor and we can teach online, but like my kids have lost, even though they're doing online, they're doing good. I know there's a significant portion of the country that doesn't have internet and, you know, we, there are problems like that. Like, are we going to be back in the fall? Like just for fun. Like I know you, no one can predict, but like, do you think we're going to be back in the fall? Are there measures we can take to make it happen? You know, can this, can this happen? Yeah, so um, it can, but it's not going to look anything like the normal that we are accustomed to, right? So lots of different measures are being proposed. We need to get people back to work. We need to get kids back in school. So how do we do that in as safe, scientifically evidence-based safe as we can? Um, that would mean potentially mask requirements. It could mean potentially uh, an AM, PM schedule in a university, you know, a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. Let's say a class meets 
Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, typically, and it's a 30-person class. Well, in the fall, it may be that 10 come on Monday, 10 come on Wednesday, like 10 come on Friday, so that they all get interaction with the professor live, right? But in the times you're not interacting with the professor live, you know, you get access to your lectures through some virtual forum. So uh, increased uh, um, uh, decontamination, hospital-grade decontamination, particularly of high-touch surfaces. These, these are all measures that will need to be implemented in order for us to create as safe a return as possible. So what do I predict? I predict that uh, when it comes to education, that kids will be back in you know, K through 12 and that college students will be back in higher ed institutions, uh, but it will, be a re it will be a very different experience than we are accustomed to. It certainly will not be what school was like pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, and, you know, slowly but surely, we will work our way toward a, uh, a, a, you know, back to what we experienced, back to the way life was before this all occurred. But that's not going to happen in the fall. We're so going to work our way toward that. Just a few more questions for you. I know we're getting out of, getting close to time. And I just, I, I know, I just want to have two more questions for you. So one, should people go out and get immunity testing? I know there's been a lot of issues with the immunity tests and I just want to know, like, should we go out? I, I know I can get it through my insurance right now. It's like a hundred dollar fee. Should I go out and do that? Should I get the antibody test? Right. Well, I don't think you should. And the reason there's a couple reasons why, first of all, we are accelerating the timeline by which the antibody tests are occurring in that the, um, uh, the number of different tests that are coming to market, uh, is huge and they're not all equally valid. You know, in order to get this antibody testing to, to the public as quickly as possible, the usual checks and balances that a test would go through with the FDA are being circumvented. Through emergency use authorization, these tests are coming fast and furious into the, the, the public arena. And unfortunately, the, the tests are not all that accurate. That's first of all. Right. So depending on the type of test you get, you know, it may be a situation and this is true where some tests, if you get a positive result, the likelihood of it being a false positive and the likelihood of it being an, a, 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 um, a true positive are equal. So you have an equal chance oh, of it man. being real antibodies or it being a, 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 a an inaccurate test. If you were a clinician, would you think that test has any valid, not any validity? Not at all. So reason number one is that, that right now, the, the there, there are a lot of tests out there with very dubious accuracy. Secondly, and I, I think this is even more important, is that what the test indicates is that your body has been exposed to COVID-19 and you've had an immune response. Your body has begun to create antibodies. That's what it detects. It detects that you have created, that you've had an immune response and you've gotten some antibodies to COVID. We don't know if that means you're protected from getting COVID. We don't know if you don't have sufficient antibody production to be protective, right? We don't know if your demonstration of antibodies protects you from whatever version of COVID you are going to get exposed to. 
one, one other thing I wanted to quickly share with you, um, and you let me know if you can see this on your screen. Uh, it should come up in a second. Um, did you get that? Yeah, 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 I can see it, yeah. Okay, so this is a, uh, a plotting, a mapping of the genomic epidemiology of COVID-19. The, here you see the different strains of COVID-19. Each one of these dots represents a different form of SARS-CoV-2. Wow. Each color represents sort of, the, you know, the master of where it came from. Here you see, you know, this is the SARS-CoV-2 that began in China. You can see the country, China, right? And I'm going to just pick a, you know, a random dot. You know, this is a dot that of the a form of COVID-19 that's been found in the United Kingdom. Uh, here's a dot of COVID-19 that's been found in Spain. Uh, here's a dot that's been found in the United States. And here you can see a, a mapped representation of those varying uh, uh, strains and how they've crisscrossed the globe. So you see that as, and this is typical of, of all uh, pathogens, particularly viral pathogens, um, here you see how much it's changed since the initial virus, okay? And you see how those changes have multiplied and spread around the world. So when you talk about antibodies, I'm immediately thinking, okay, that's great that you've had an immune response, but is it going to protect you against whatever COVID threat you're being faced by? Is it sufficient protection? And that we don't know. So antibody testing itself is not a bad idea, right? But it has some enormous loopholes and cannot be a sole strategy for the control of COVID-19. It's another tool in the toolbox. It's got a role in our understanding how to best protect people. But in isolation, it is not the missing piece of the puzzle. It's not a silver bullet. Right? It's just one more strategy that we can add to the mix to help us best protect people. So I think that, I think that antibody testing has a role, but uh, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that it's you know, going to solve this problem if people are just going to get exposed, get antibodies, get some kind of card to show I've had my antibodies. You know, that's not reality. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So just one final question that since I've been asking you like things I've read on the internet and stuff throughout this whole entire interview, what are places that you recommend the general public goes to, to find information on what's the data mortality in, you know, is, did you recommend like the CDC's website? Like where should we go that we have pretty reliable, trustworthy information that's not biased, not political, all that kind of stuff. Right. And this gets back to how we started this whole conversation. You know, the very first thing I said was that uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you because there is an overwhelming amount of information, but within that information, a great deal of disinformation, misinformation, misinterpretation of, of facts. And so uh, I appreciate this final question because it sort of brings us back to the beginning. I want, and, and you know, when I'm asked, what's the one bit of advice you would give to people? This is how I typically answer. It's that this is a very dynamic and constantly evolving situation. Our understanding of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 is changing all the time, sometimes minute by minute. 
And so information is also changing about how to best protect yourself and your family, about what would be the strategically um, a way to, you know, begin to, you know, reintroduce yourself back to your, you know, normal life, but do it in a way that's, you know, safest and, and most evidence-based. And so, bear, so I think that given the dynamics of this situation and its constant evolution, I think it's critical that you be an informed consumer of media and that you go to just a few key sites that are completely unbiased, that are completely rooted in science and that apply directly to your life. And when I think of those sites, I think of the CDC as a national source, your state department of health as a local source and a hyper-local source being your most local department of health. Now, for some people, that's a state department, I'm sorry, a city department of health. For some people, it's a county department of health, right? But those sources, you know, always have information that's rooted in science, that's evidence-based, and their recommendations really are the ones that you should put the most stock in, right? CDC at a national and even international level, and then depending on where you live, you want something, you want a source that's more tailored to, to your living environment. And so I recommend your state department of health and your most local department of health, right? Again, most people, that's a city or a county sure. department. Yeah, we have a really good site in North Carolina. It's giving me, it's a lot, it's updated every day at 11. So it's updated every day and it's giving a lot of good info. And I yeah. think that's something, you know, for maybe, so one of the things, so first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. It was awesome. I'm learning so much from talking to you. And, you know, I, I should tell everyone, you know, uh, Dr. Rondello, Casey, and I have had several conversations before this interview about, and I have learned so much to be able to talk to someone who is an expert in this, it's really amazing. And one of the things we're probably gonna do is we're gonna try to do this, you know, like once every few weeks, once a month, while this is going on, so that he can keep providing us with updated info. Cause I think it's really valuable to just be able to ask questions. And maybe we'll even try a live one where we'll allow some audience, like people, to actually ask questions while we're doing it. Cause I think that would be really interesting. But like just even you telling us about those websites, like to talk about what statistics are important for us to pay attention to. Like, I think that would like, we, there are so many other topics that we just didn't get into today that I think would be really valuable for people, for me to know, for everyone else. Like, I'm just curious as a reader, like, you know, what's, I see my state website and I'm like, okay, well, what should I really be paying attention to here? And I'm, I'm reading the news and it's, you know, it's a reporter who's not a medical expert telling me about COVID. So that's why these sources are so valuable. And that's why it's invaluable to talk to someone who is a medical expert to find out what is really happening. And that's why I think people, you know, want us to continue to, you know, inform them about what's happening. But I, I just want to thank you for your time. Like this is. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, 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 I you know, one of the, the greatest uh, opportunities that we get as uh, disaster epidemiologists, epidemiologists in general, is, is being able to leverage, you know, many, many, you know, in my case, 14 years of college and, you know, then a 20 year career in public health to the benefit of communities. That's, you know, 
precisely why we do this kind of work. Sure, you've you know, always uh, wanted to help it, people. I mean, that's your goal is to help society. And now like your information is really doing that. In the most unfortunate of circumstances, there is a shining light that we have people fighting for us to tell us, like figure out what we should be doing to help us, not just health, but economically and everything else. Like we, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get back. And I think it's important to hear from experts. I think it's good. But I just want to thank you. It was, it was great. You know, great conversation. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Great. My pleasure. We'll definitely do it again. All right. All right. Bye.